This is Jocko Podcast number nine with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Perhaps I stabbed our Savior in his sacred helpless side, yet have called his name in blessing when in after times I died. Through the travail of the ages, midst the pomp and toil of war, have I fought and strove and perished countless times upon this star. I have sinned and I have suffered, played the hero and the knave, fought for belly, shame, or country, and for each have found a grave. So as through a glass and darkly, the age-long strife I see, where I fought in many guises, many names, but always me. So forever in the future shall I battle as of yore, dying to be born a fighter, but to die again once more. And that is a poem by General George S. Patton. And I've been thinking about the podcast and about the direction and about the things and about what we talk about and what I talk about. And I was actually have been looking for a, for a non-military book, for a book that talks about the same kind of things that I think about, but it's not about war because there's a very small population that are engaged in war in real war. So I've been looking for a book and I've, and I've got a bunch of books and books that I enjoy and books that I like. And I've been looking for a, a, a good book that is not a war book. And I had some close ones and maybe they'll make the cut, but, but, but we're not there yet because, because quite simply war is at another level. It's not better, and it's not a good thing, and I don't worship war, but it is, in fact, the ultimate human struggle. Yeah. And as Judge Holden, in the book Blood Meridian, puts it, this is the nature of war, whose stake is at once the game and the authority and the justification. Seen so, war is the truest form of divination. It is the testing of one's will and the will of another within that larger will which because it binds them is therefore forced to select. War is the ultimate game Because war is, at last, a forcing of the unity of existence. War is God. Now, I'm going to tell you, I'm not going to go into Blood Meridian tonight. Blood Meridian, I've talked about it on a couple occasions. And one day, we will. And it's probably going to take multiple shows, and it's going to take research, but that is a heavy, heavy book that is thick with content and meaning and words that are powerful. Mm-hmm. And that's a tiny slice of Blood Meridian. And 
we will get to it at some point. And I actually get, you know, people are always like, Hey, do blood Meridian, do blood Meridian. Cause there's a lot of people that take a, a lot of information, a lot of meaning from that book, but I'm not ready yet. I'm not, you know, mm. that's going to take, and it's the same thing with Shakespeare. People are like, Hey, when are you going to do the bard? Yeah. And it's the same thing. I, I want to be fully prepared and I'm either going to do, th- maybe I won't be fully prepared to do the whole thing, but maybe we'll take chunks yeah. of Blood Meridian yeah, or some yeah. chunks of Shakespeare and start to try and digest them because those are big meals. <laughs> now, that's why, you know, that's why we're not talking about a business book tonight. That's why we're not talking about a business leader. That's why we're not talking about a sports leader. That's when I, we're not talking about uh, a public figure that had to struggle through whatever to get to the top of the mountain that they were climbing mm-hmm. or a mountain climber. We're not talking about that. Mm-hmm. We're talking about a war. And like I said, war is not God like judge Holden describes it in blood Meridian, but it certainly is a powerful force. And it certainly is the ultimate struggle. Mm-hmm. The ultimate struggle for life against other humans that want to end your life. And that's it. Which brings us to Patton. And that poem, you know, obviously in Patton's mind, he he was a warrior before over and over again. Yeah. He thought he was reincarnated. Thought he right? was reincarnated. Like when, well, he was a soldier for Caesar. Soldier and, for uh, hundreds and thousands of years. Yeah. Yeah. And, before I do jump into Patton, I do the tankers, the tankers of the world, the, the U.S. military. We worked with the 1-1 AD, the 1st Brigade, 1st Armored Division in Ramadi, Iraq in 2006, the Ready First, and the tanks, the 68-ton Abrams main battle tank with a giant turbine engine grinding the street apart as they come to support and rescue and save the seals, which they did over and over again. And there was no better sound in the world than those tanks firing up their engines and putting main gun rounds into buildings to kill bad guys and protect American troops. And we heard a lot about Patton while we were working with the 1180 because the guy is the kind of the foremost tanker. Mm. And even me, I grew up with Patton mm-hmm. because the George C. Scott movie was released when I was a kid. And to this day, I remember watching that for the first time. And being, you know, awestruck by Patton. (laughs) And when you stick your hand into a bunch of goo that a moment ago was your best friend's face, then you'll know what to do. And that's all. And so that was just a, that's how I grew up. I mean, I grew up, I watched that movie so many times, I can't even remember. Do you still watch it? We watched it in Ramadi. We watched it in Ramadi. What, with just the to boys, get fired up? Just to get fired up. <laughs> uh, and 
And it is a great movie. But let's talk about the real Patton, who actually, in many ways, was more colorful and more charismatic and really larger in life, in real life, than George C. Scott in the movie could make him out to be. Mm-hmm. I read that he would, when he'd talk and stuff, he'd swear a lot, he'd u- use oh, a lot yeah. of profanity, but he he did that on purpose. Oh, yeah. He did it like to, to, to send yeah. a message or to get his guys fired up, but in regular conversation, he didn't really no. swear. He's a, he's a mysterious guy with a lot yeah. of different facets to him. So I'm going to kick this off. So we're going to the book, George S. Patton, War As I Knew It. And uh, interestingly, this book was given to me by Leif, Leif Babin, who wrote Extreme Ownership with me and who served with me in Ramadi and is one of my brothers. So General Order Number 18 This is from Patton to his troops. Soldiers of the 7th Army, born at sea, baptized in blood, and crowned with victory. In the course of 38 days of incessant battle and unceasing labor, you have added a glorious chapter to the history of war. Pitted against the best Germans and Italians could offer, you have been unfailingly successful. The rapidity of your dash, which culminated in the capture of Palermo, was equaled by the dogged tenacity with which you stormed Trinia and captured Messina. Every man in the army deserves equal credit. The enduring valor of the infantry and the impetus ferocity of the tanks were matched by the tireless clamor of our destroying guns. The engineers performed prodigies in the construction and maintenance of impossible roads over impassable country. The services of maintenance and supply performed a miracle. The signal corps laid over 10,000 miles of wire, and the medical department evacuated and cared for our sick and wounded. On all occasions, the Navy has given generous and gallant support. Throughout the operation, our air has kept the sky clear and tirelessly supported the operation of the ground troops. As a result of this combined effort, you have killed or captured... 113,350 enemy troops. You've destroyed 265 of his tanks, 2,324 vehicles, and 1,162 large guns. And in addition, you've collected a mass of military booty running into the hundreds of tons. But your victory has a significance above and beyond its physical aspect. You have destroyed the prestige of the enemy. The President of the United States, the Secretary of War, the Chief of Staff, General Eisenhower, General Alexander, General Montgomery, have all congratulated you. Your fame shall never die. G.S. Patton, Jr., Lieutenant General, U.S. Army, Commanding. So you were talking about getting fired up and what he would do to get get people fired up? Mm-hmm. There you have it. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, a very skilled writer with great command of the language. Can you even imagine what you'd feel like hearing that address to you and your, your people, you and your troops, you and your brothers? A little bit about Patton. Few military figures in history have laid siege to the public imagination more relentlessly than George S. Patton Jr., 
half a century after his exploits in North Africa, on Sicily, and across occupied Europe, his name still evokes the dash and brio of a cavalry, cavalry charge. He is widely considered the best field commander in the American army of World War II, and he is certainly one of, one of the most feared by the Germans, who paid him the compliment before Normandy of massing defenses against a non-existent army patent group. By VE Day in 1945, he commanded 18 divisions and 540,000 soldiers, a force comparable to the size of the American military at its peak in Vietnam. The New York Times declared in his obituary, history has reached out and embraced General George Patton. His place is secure. He was not a man of peace. A man of peace he was not, but his legacy clearly transcends his military conquests. He was complex and contradictory, larger than life, and yet all too human. It is the patent paradox that transfixes. And this is something that we've talked about before on this podcast, and it's something that I talk about all the time. And that is, people's strengths can be their weaknesses. Mm -hmm. And you get a guy like Patton who's hyper-aggressive. And that actually ends up being a negative in some cases, even though it's extremely positive in others. Mm -hmm. Back to the book. A warlord fighting in the name of democracy. He was also an unrepentant arist aristocratic snob. So this is a guy that, and they talk about this some more, but a guy that was like proud of soldiers, mm -hmm. almost to a fault. He revered soldiers, and yet he's an aristocrat. Mm. His devotion to common soldiers bordered on reverence, yet his slapping of two enlisted men nearly caused him to sit out the war in disgrace. And we'll get into that a little bit more. He exuded confidence and relent relentless certitude. In truth, he was insecure and often confused. He was well-read, fluent in French, and as a wealthy... As a wealthy child of privilege and the husband of an heiress at home in society's most fashionable salons, he could also be crude, rude, and plain foolish. His humility seemed heartfelt, yet he acknowledged an overdeveloped personal ambition and once confessed, I don't like the dirt at all except as a means to fame. <laughs> So, like I said, this guy is a complex guy. This isn't a salt of the earth David Hackworth guy that you mm. never got that from him. You never got that from like a guy like Hackworth yeah. that he had any sort of quest for glory. Yeah. He just the complete opposite. And that's why Patton for me is a is not a pure figure. Mm. You know? Not that I would really say that I, I can think of any pure figures, but he's definitely a very faulted yeah. leader. And which makes it good to learn from. Mm. And he had some amazing, I mean, obviously, I, I, I'm, here I am, a, a complete idiot loser sitting here calling, uh, you know, General George S. Pat, George S. Patton saying he's a faulted leader. So mm -hmm. don't get me, don't get me wrong here. Yeah. The guy was unbelievably uh, powerful leader, an incredible leader, an incredible tactician and strategist. But. And it is very clear that he had some of those dichotomies that went a little bit too far in one way or the other. Mm -hmm. 
as a warrior, back to the book, as a warrior, his fundamental prescription for waging war involved violent attacks everywhere with everything. Yet he considered the carpet bombing of German cities to be barbaric, useless, and sadistic. So that's, that's a contradiction you don't hear very much about him. And here's how he was seen by the higher-ups a little bit. Eisenhower, who once referred to Patton as this mentally unbalanced officer, also told George Marshall, Patton is a problem child, but he is, great, he is a great fighting leader in pursuit and exploitation. A division commander described the general as invaluable in war, but a disturbing element in times of peace. And to that, Patton was flattered. But perhaps the epitaph he would treasure most came from one of his soldiers before the Allied invasion of France. Here is a man for whom you would go to hell and back. So clearly to his troops, they held him in very high regard. Quote from Patton, may God have mercy on my enemies. They will need it. That's... That's the kind of thing that that when he says people, you know, the frontline troopers are going to hear that and say, yes, we are ready to roll. Uh, He also said leadership is a thing that wins battles. I have it, but I'll be damned if I can define it. In Patton's career, we see certain trademarks, a relentless aggression and faith in the offensive, an uncanny instinct for enemy intentions and disposition. Common theme that we talk about all the time, being on offense, being aggressive. And Patton was an absolute, probably, I think he is probably the most aggressive of, of the people that we've talked about and of pretty much, I think, of, of anyone I've ever heard of. Mm-hmm. And it goes a little bit negative. And we see, too, the creeping arrogance, the hubris which would cost the American army so dearly in Vietnam. Summing up the achievements of his troops in crushing the German counterattack of December 1944, Patton, with pardonable pride, claims to have moved farther and faster and engaged more divisions in less time than any other army in the history of the United States, possibly in the history of the world. No country can stand against such an army. This smug pride, the disease of victory, and I love that. That's a, that's a little something we should all remember. The disease of victory. Victory is supposed to be all positive, but guess what? There's something called the disease of victory. Back to the book. This disease of victory would rot the army from within, leading future commanders to underestimate their enemies and overestimate their own battlefield prowess. Tragically, the only antidote to this disease of victory would be the humiliation of defeat. We see that sometimes in sports. A lot. We see it in sports. We see it in business. Sometimes people need to get humbled. Yeah. And when they get humbled, they get arrogant from the victories. And then they get humbled and they get back in the game. And they realize what they have to do to win. Mm -hmm. 
Back to the book. His passion for military life ran so deep that he considered it as natural for me to be a soldier as to breathe. War, he claimed, is the only place where a man really lives. Beyond a keen interest in technological developments of armored vehicles and airplanes, he retained a near fanatical belief in the importance of being mentally and physically ready to fight. Even in war-weary 1920s, he admonished junior officers, you must school yourself to savagery. And speaking of savagery, this is the, the slaps when he slapped these young enlisted troopers. The infamous slaps heard round the world. Patton's memoir gives the episode short shrift, but it nearly wrecked his life. In early August, while visiting wounded troops on Sicily, the commander cuffed a soldier who had been diagnosed as suffering from battle fatigue. Patton called it cowardice. Further examination revealed the man had malaria and dysentery. A week later, Patton repeated his behavior with another soldier, and this time made motions to draw his pistol as if to shoot the wretch. Patton publicly apologized, but remained privately unrepentant. Had other officers had the courage to do likewise, he wrote, the shameful use of battle fatigue as an excuse for cowardice would have been infinitely reduced. So that was a significant incident that he, you know, he publicly apologized, but he obviously didn't really mean that. Mm -hmm. He felt he had done the right thing. But still, there was much glory to be won. Patton's exploit in the Battle of the Bulge, abruptly wheeling his army around and driving 100 miles through the icy Ardennes to hit the Germans in the flank with 17 divisions, remains among the most storied campaigns in modern warfare. And then after the war, as Europe was now almost an occupied state in many places, and as, as people talked about Patton being good for war but not being good for peace, and that turned out to be pretty accurate, mm. no longer able to attack, he indeed became bullious. Patton was arrogant, defiant, and erratic as the summer of 1945 passed. And that's kind of the intro on Patton. Now, going back now to the beginning of the war and his first, one of his early journal entries, he says, have been giving everyone a simplified directive of war. Use steamroller strategy. That is, Make up your mind on course and direction of action and stick to it. But in tactics, do not steamroller. Attack weakness. Hold them by the nose and kick them in the pants. This is 
something that we talk about all the time. It's, it's, it's flanking people. It's not keeping, not going into their strengths and keep attacking their strengths. No, you, you attack their strengths to keep them occupied, but then you come around to the flank, you know, it's mm-hmm. in jujitsu, you attack the arm and you get the neck or you attack the neck and you get the arm mm-hmm. in combat. It's flanking. That's what it is. And he was a master of this and pushed it very, very hard. Now, we can get into a little bit more of his, what he says are his reflections and suggestions. And if in this book, if you, if you do end up getting this book, uh, I'm basically skipping the war part. The, 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 the entire book is about what he did and how he did it. And I'm skipping that. And I've said this before because I'm, I like to know about what they did and how they did it because mm-hmm. that is important. But I like to know why they did it and what they were thinking and what principles they were following. And this book beautifully breaks it down. Again, it's written by him. Mm-hmm. But it breaks down what he was thinking, mm-hmm. why he did take these actions, and what his strategies and tactics were. Mm-hmm. And this is great because he starts off saying something that's very similar to what Leif and I say in the beginning of our book, which is like, we didn't invent this stuff. Mm. So here's General George S. Patton saying the same thing. thing, Probably there is nothing original in what I shall now put down because war is an ancient subject and I, an ancient man, have studied and practiced it for over 40 years. So what appears to me as original thought may, may be simply subconscious memories. So he's saying... I didn't necessarily think of all this. And Leif and I, in the beginning of our book, say the same thing. Mm. Concerning the soldier, the soldier is the army. No army is better than its soldiers. The soldier is also a citizen. In fact, the highest obligation and privilege of citizenship is that of bearing arms for one's country. Hence, it is a privilege to be a soldier. A good soldier. To be a good soldier, a man must have discipline, self-respect, pride in his unit and his country, a high sense of duty and obligation to his comrades and to his superiors, and self-confidence born of demonstrated ability. His number one characteristic was discipline, which should come as no surprise. There has been and is now a great deal of talk about discipline, but few people in or out of the army know what it is or why it is necessary. No sane man is unafraid in battle, but discipline produces in him a form of vicarious courage, which with his manhood makes for victory. Self-respect grows directly from discipline. Self-confidence, the greatest military virtue, results from the demonstrated ability derived from the acquisition of all the preceding qualities and from from exercise in the use of weapons. So self-confidence comes from practice and skill, and that's derived from discipline. Discipline is... 
clearly a subject we talk about quite a bit mm-hmm. and its importance in the military is cannot be overstated. It really can't be. And I would go so far as to tell you that discipline's importance in life cannot be overstated. Mm. The root of all good characteristics is the discipline. Battles are won by fire and by movement. The purpose of movement is to get the fire in a more advantageous place to play on the enemy. This is from the rear or the flank. You're going to hear this guy talk about flanks all the time. He's going to talk about fire and move. He's going to talk about cover and move, Mm. as Leif and I called it in our book. Cover and move. And this is, again, this is teamwork. Teamwork. Constantly working with your team and your other teams that are with you to make sure that if I'm putting down cover fire, you're moving, you're moving. Mm. And when you're putting down cover fire, I'm moving. You've got to work together to make that happen. And every business in the world has multiple little units in it that have to cover and move. Talking about bravery and courage. If we take the generally accepted definition of bravery as a quality which knows not fear, I have never seen a brave man. All men are frightened. The more intelligent they are, the more frightened they are. The courageous man is the man who forces himself, in spite of his fear, to carry on. And where does that come from? It comes from discipline pride, self-respect, self-confidence, and the love of glory are attributes which will make a man courageous even when he is afraid. There's not too many people. I mean, you would, Hackworth would never talk about the love of glory. Mm-hmm. It's just not, not his deal. Not his deal. The, when you, what you mentioned about bravery, this, how you were talking with um, Sam Harris mm-hmm. about it where bravery is only present if you are scared of something because if you're not scared of it you're not being brave to overcome True. anything or to, to go you know to do any kind of activity that's um you know that, that you're scared of so the very although i don't know if i necessarily agree with that because there's guys that are you know he says he's never seen anyone that's not not afraid i've seen some pretty i mean it's almost the word to use it's like crazy guys that are just so brave and you look at them and they, you, they, you go, this guy's gonna, this guy, I had guys with me, you know, in my task unit and some of those guys were so brave that I didn't think they were going to make it home. And is, is it cause they were like, um, it's like they, they weren't scared to die at all. Like it didn't. Yeah. yeah. And, and you see the almost a lack of self-preservation, right? You know, not, not stupid, not, not suicidal, but like, oh, this guy doesn't think he can be killed. You know, we were talking about that on the last podcast and I forget the name of the major that was on the beach landing at Tarawa, I think. And he's up and he's like, Hey, look, they can't hit me. Come on. Yeah. I've seen guys do that. Yeah. So as far as actual bravery goes, though, so would you consider that 
um, like let's say okay, two guys are gonna go go do some let's say an MMA fight, right? Mm-hmm. And one guy's just really scared mm-hmm. of competing in front of people. It's his first fight or something like that. Then you have this other guy who who's not who just feels different. Same exact situation, but he's like fired up. He's not scared at all. And they both go into it. Do did they both exercise the same bravery? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, you know, and I don't know if it matters. Um, yeah. For one thing, I can tell you, the guy that's acting like he's not scared is probably the one that's more scared. Yeah. <laughs> with MMA fights, sure, right? And it's and I actually see that in combat too. Guys that are overly like bravado mm-hmm. are probably more scared. And yeah. and again, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not holding it against them, mm-hmm. but. Um, you know, I've seen guys sitting in briefs to go out on operations that you can tell are, are, are petrified. Yeah. Usually it's a guy that's not used to it. Maybe, maybe someone that's visiting in an area of operations and shows up and it's, Oh, we're going to take you out on on an operation Mm -hmm. and you get to see them. They're, they're scared because they're not used to it. All the guys from my task unit, you know, they might be scared, but they're confident. They know what they're doing. Right. They're they've they've put that fear aside over and over again. So it's not that big of a deal. But you see a guy dealing with that fear for the first time. Yeah. And it especially stands out because you've got a bunch of confident guys that that know, that understand, that understand the risks. Mm-hmm. So you can see their faces. Then you see like that guy that's yeah. come in from another area and is going to go out on operation and and they're they're tapping their toes during the brief and they're looking around and and they got to overcome that fear. And if they stay there for a few weeks, they'll, they'll get used to it too. Yeah. So it could kind of be looked at as, um, just, just the act itself, whatever act, if it's understood as being, yeah. Sam Harris's point was that it, it doesn't matter if there's a machine gun nest and you're horrified to go charge it. And I'm not, and we both go charge it. You just had to pretend that you weren't scared. It doesn't matter. You were still being brave. Right, right. And and I didn't have to pretend, but I'm being brave. So it doesn't matter whether yeah. you're pretending or not. You're brave if you go. Right. And or maybe just to overcome or do something that's understood generally as being scary. Just yeah. as not scared yeah. to yeah. scary to you, you're still being just right. as brave. You are. But yeah, I think yeah, and I guess in a real black and white terms, it's like if you're not scared of this activity you're doing. And you do it, and you're not yeah. scared of it, then you're not being brave. And that's just in generally speaking, yeah. like you know, it's a good example: skydivers. Yeah, skydivers with five thousand jumps, they're not, right. they're not scared anymore. Yeah, I mean, I know even when I've done like you know fifty jumps, you're not really scared anymore. Right, you're just doing it. And guys yeah. that have thousands jump, they're not scared at all. That's what they do. Right. So they're not being brave. They're just doing their job. They're just doing their thing. Yeah. So what if some guy's jumping out for the first time and he's scared and he overcomes that fear and yeah. jumps out? He is being brave. Yeah. Right, so yeah. Uh, yeah, that's kind of the point. Yeah, so if I go outside and check the mail, I'm not being brave. No, you're not being brave. But what if there's like a tiger or something out there, then and I really brave. need that mail? <laughs> uh, that's pretty brave, right? Tigers going after tigers, yeah. You're yeah, brave. yeah, you're right, you're right. Uh, section here, small unit tactics. And you know, I was questioning whether I wanted to put this in there, but I know that I'm getting a lot of feedback from guys that are in the military, guys that are in SWAT, and this is something that I used to talk about. And I know it's true. Squads should seldom be split. So you want to keep your forces together as much as possible. However, if it is necessary to split a squad, be sure that the unit separated as at least capable of mutual support. So this is something I used to hammer the seals about. If you get too far away from your other unit where you can't support them anymore, mm. 
that's problematic now that now that other units alone and that means that each unit that's separate should have the ability to support it means it has to have some firepower and some strength this means that the unit separated from the squad should have not fewer than three men the squad possesses in itself weapons necessary for a base and fire and maneuvering element this should be an this should be this should be its invariable method of attack, but the squad leader should not spend so much time thinking which way he is going to envelop that he suffers casualties which would have been avoided had he attacked at once. So don't hesitate. Don't sit around. When it's time to get it on, get it on. <laughs> Patton's uh, all about the taking action. Another small unit tactic. This is a short one. Always capture the highest terrain feature in your vicinity at once and stay on it. And that is something that we executed all the time in Ramadi. Get in the high ground. Get in those buildings. Find the three-story building amongst the two-story buildings. Find the two-story building amongst the one-story building. Always looking for that high ground. Mm. In the In the rural areas any kind of knoll any kind of bump anything that gives you the high ground is what you're looking for and as i said last time from an ethical and from a moral standpoint high ground take the high ground or the high ground will take you (laughs) you gotta watch out for that don't delay the best is the enemy of the good and these are, I mean, that's just a common saying now. The best is the enemy of the good. By this I mean that a good plan violently executed now is better than a perfect plan next week. War is a very simple thing, and the determining characteristics are self-confidence, speed, and audacity. None of these things can ever be perfect, but they can be good. He's talking about now general officers meaning the senior leaders and these apply to every leader not just senior leaders there are more tired division commanders than there are tired divisions tired officers are always pessimists remember this when evaluating reports generals must never show doubt discouragement or fatigue generals should always adhere to one type of dress so that soldiers will recognize them they must always be very neat. And most importantly, from my perspective, I like what he says here. In cold weather, general officers must be careful not to appear to dress more warmly than the men. You don't want to do that. You don't want to be in the comfort zone when the boys are suffering. You um, look like you're debating that No, statement. no, no. I'm not debating. I was thinking about it. Because you're about to get shut down. I have a question. Send the question. So... Let's say you're a boss, right? You have this office, and this office is, like, decked out. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, everyone on your team, they have normal offices. Is that an example of what he's no, against? No, generally because you actually do have more work to do. You have you have to have meetings in your office. And and, and it's interesting, too, because uh, I, I didn't highlight it in, in this for this series, but they were saying that General Patton – wasn't a four-star general. He was a 28-star general because when he would put his full uniform on, he had four stars on his collar, on each collar, four star on each shoulder, four stars in the helmet, and four stars 
on each one of the handles of his of his pearl handled pistol grip 45s. So the guy was <clears throat> like a little bit of I mean that's a that's a showman, that's a that's a that's a diva, right? Yeah. So he didn't you know, he, he knew that there's a certain amount of showmanship yeah. to being in a leadership position. And that's sort of what he's talking about by being recognizable. I mean, right. he's very recognizable. He had stars all over his cars and everything. Yeah, so it's more like he, the comfort of, of battle. So Yeah, but you, you know. could, you could as a CEO, you could absolutely take that to the wrong level where you're, right. you know, just living in total luxury and all your people are out and, you know, cramped into cubicles that, you know, your your folks would definitely look at you in a negative way. Yeah. But to but to have what's needed for the job, you know, when I was a TU commander, I had an office that was mine, you know, and I had space in there to work. Right. Um, but I wasn't, you know, shipping in steaks for me to have every night while the men were eating. Right, right. MREs. Yeah. So you just got to be careful. Keep yourself in check a little bit. What about when you travel, you go first class. Meanwhile, you send your team and coach. That once again, sometimes the the boss is traveling in first class because when he lands, he's got to present, mm-hmm. and he's got to he's got to be a little bit better rested. Sometimes the boss man is just sick of being cramped mm-hmm. in a little tiny seats. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you do got you got to keep that in check. And I'll tell you, when I was when I when I worked for the admiral of all the seals, we didn't fly first class. Mm-hmm. We were in the cheap seats. They are very careful about that. They don't want to think that the oh, the the military elite is flying around first class no we were in the cheap seats mm-hmm. sitting in the back of delta you know eating peanuts yeah yeah there's so many justifiable reasons in business like and yeah, i and think you, you would go along with that too but you just got to use your judgment you yeah. know you got to use your judgment and make sure that you know everyone's wearing you know a 10 year old field jacket when it gets cold and you're wearing a brand new down and gore-tex jacket right, your, right. your people are going to not respect you yeah you know you can't just deck yourself out when the boys yeah. or the troopers are suffering yeah yeah and and how he mentioned where or how you mentioned what he's talking about, where it can be categorized as being recognizable. You know, right, so there's right. a lot of things, even stuff outside of just uniform, that a CEO, how he presents himself, yeah. that'll keep him recognizable. Yeah. For, for all these yeah. reasons, but I'm sure, I'm sure most of the time, no one's perfect where they're gonna, they're gonna start doing it just because. Yeah, but you I'm do have CEO. to, and you know, there's good, there's good business leaders now that that follow this type of lead. I mean, look at some yeah. of these new younger business leaders. Yeah. They're not getting decked out. Yeah. I saw a picture of uh, the guy that runs Facebook. Mm-hmm. I saw a picture of his closet the other day. He's got like a bunch of gray t-shirts in there. Right. You know? And um, from what I hear, I've like been to the office or nothing. He, his, he doesn't have an office. He, there's this open space, everyone's coding and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And he's just cruising in, in there yeah. as well. You know? So yeah, there's, yeah, I guess there's all kinds of different So people relate to him yeah. a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it would depend on the business as well. Yeah. However, this part is undebatable. A general officer who will invariably assume the responsibility for failure, whether he deserves it or not, and invariably gives credit for success to others, whether they deserve it or not, will achieve outstanding success. It's a little something that we call extreme ownership. You know, <laughs> yeah. that's that's the name of our book. It's Someone that's out. taking ownership. Yeah. And this is George S. Patton. Sorry yeah. for jacking your ideas, George S. Yeah. Patton. I uh, think that's crazy how that was like such a prominent 
idea back then. Yeah. Because like yeah. growing up and, and I don't know, I just never heard about that. I, I know. And and when Leif and I presented this book to people, they don't say, oh, this is a very common theme that I've heard my whole yeah. life. No, they go, this is outstanding. And yeah, we're saying crazy. the exact same thing that General George S. Patton's saying right here, yeah. which is uh, obviously extremely important. Issuing orders. The best way to issue orders is by word of mouth from one general to the next. Failing this telephone conversations which should be recorded at each end however in order to have a confirmatory memorandum of all oral orders given a short written order should always be made out not necessarily at the time of issuing the order but it should reach the junior prior to carrying out the order so that if he has forgotten anything he will be reminded of it and further in order that he may be aware that his senior has taken definite responsibility for the operation ordered orally this is something that I used to do this all the time. If I had a conversation with my boss, I still do it to this day. If I have a conversation with someone and we talk about something, I'm following it up with a little email. Yeah. Because also oral conversations, people hear what they want to hear. Mm. And they might hear two different things. Right. You know, if I tell you, hey, we're going to record this podcast. Hey, can we record this podcast on Saturday? Mm-hmm. You're like, oh, yeah, definitely. Does that mean we are? Does that mean in your mind you think we are, but right, I didn't right. come back, you know, so I just follow stuff up and I used to do that in SEAL teams too. You know, we'd, I'd get an order, I'd get, a, I'd have a conversation with someone that was either above me or below me or whatever. Yeah. I'd follow it up with an email of what I thought the conversation meant and mm. say, hey, just to confirm what we right. talked about, here's the three bullet points. I'm going to do this. You're going to do that. We're going to do this. And boom, it's done. And we have a document of it and it exists and that way we're confirmed. Yeah. And so how you, bring up that example where if you say, Hey, can we record a podcast on Saturday? Technically you just, that's a yes or no question. Like, mm-hmm. yes, we can, like yeah. we're, we have that ability. That's a no. You didn't schedule anything technically. No. You said, so I could have taken it either yeah. way. You, you know? could be like, yeah, we can. And yeah. then I show up here at eight and you're like, Oh yeah, you know, I didn't know we were actually going to do it. it. Yeah. You just said, you know, um, when I first started getting uh, more, more hiring clients, it, it was, immediately noticeable that that was a common thing they'd always follow up with with an email right after and helps so much man it does you got to do it it is my oh this i love this it is my opinion that army orders should not exceed a page and a half of typewritten text and it was my practice not to issue orders longer than this usually they can be done on one page and the back of the page is used for a sketch map and my favorite part about this is if you get someone that can't give you their orders mm. in like a page, yeah, then that means their orders are too complicated. Yeah, that means they need to simplify their plan. Right. And he's going to say this a few times. Commanders must remember that the issuance of an order or the devising of a plan is only about five percent of the responsibility of command. The other 95% is to ensure by personal observation or through interposing of staff officers that the order is carried out. Orders must be issued early enough to permit time to disseminate them. So he's saying like, hey, it's only 5% of your job to come up with a plan and disseminate the plan. Mm -hmm. The other 95% of your job is to make sure it happens. Mm -hmm. Take ownership of the plan and get it implemented. Mm -hmm. And this is the most important part of this section. Never tell people how to do things. Tell them what, and they tell them what to do, and they will surprise you with their ingenuity. Mm-hmm. So you want to give them sort of the 
broad, hey, this is what I want you to get done and let them figure out how to do it. Mm-hmm. You're not going to be able to tell everybody on your team how, what to do and yeah. how to do it and all that. You got to let them run. Yeah. You got to use the little decentralized command, as we like to say. Yeah. In the creative world, that's a really, really significant thing to just say yeah. what you want and then let that person do it. Because if you have some creative vision. Let's, let's do a little critique of Jocko. How do I do with that? Because you're, you're sort of the creative end here. Yeah. And how am I? Good. Because all I do, I say, you know what, Echo? Here's what I think. Yeah. And then I just back away and yeah. I let you run with your game. Yeah. And that's the, yeah. It, that's, that's I don't the way micromanage. Sure. No, I don't micromanage. So, Especially so in good. the creative field. Well, I don't know. I'm sure it's, it's equally as applicable everywhere. Yeah. Right. I realize that I can't. When you you got an expert, you know when it's the same thing that was in the teams, it's the same thing in the in the business world. You, if you're the if you're the big boss man, mm-hmm. you shouldn't you you're not going to know how to do all the technical things at the folks on the front line. You're not going to have the creativity because you yeah. don't have the capability because you got other things you should be worried about. Yeah. So get on those other things and let your people yeah. run. Yeah. Let them run. In this, uh, it is sad to remember that when anyone has fairly mastered the art of command. The necessity for that art usually expires, either through the termination of the war or through the advanced age of the commander. And this is just a, this is just a damn shame. And it's the way it is. And it's, it's this way in the military. You're the, when you start feeling like you've really gotten good at that job, you're on to your next job. Mm. And, uh, that doesn't feel good. It's, it's, it's a bummer. Um, and there was a little example when I talked about him being ultra aggressive. And this is from a section. This is from a section which I didn't take. I don't think I took much out of it all. This one's called, or this section was called Earning My Pain. He talks about these important decisions that he made. But they're, mm-hmm. they're, they, they take, they're a little bit complex, some of them. But this one was fairly concise. About the 5th of September, it became apparent that we would run out of gasoline. He's talking about for his tanks. Mm-hmm. We would run out of gasoline. I directed the two corps to continue the advance until the tanks ran out of gas and then to go on on foot. This was actually done and the bridgehead across the Moselle River was secured as a result. There was considerable resistance on the part of the corps commanders to do what appeared to them an unnecessarily dangerous operation. Its success again proved that it was not dangerous. So that's, that's pretty aggressive. Mm. Hey, you drive until the tanks run out of gas. When the tanks run out of gas, get out of the tanks and walk. Yeah, that's uh, pretty legit. We used to say, like, hey, in the SEAL teams, hey, we're gonna take the boats. If the boats run out of of gas, we'll tow the boats. If the towing boats run out of gas, we'll get out and swim. We'll keep going until we get it done. Letter of instruction number two. So these are what these are what this guy. And I love this. This is what this guy was writing as instructions to be handed out to all of his men. Hmm. I mean, and this is documented. Yeah, yeah. So you wonder what Patton thinks about it. You don't have to wonder. It's right yeah. here. So here's his, his letter of instruction number two. Discipline. There is only one sort of discipline. Perfect discipline. Men cannot have good battle discipline and poor administrative discipline. Discipline is based on pride in the profession of arms, on meticulous attention to detail, and on mutual respect and confidence. Discipline must be a habit so ingrained 
that it is stronger than the excitement of battle or the fear of death. And this is why it's every day and every decision that you make in keeping that discipline. And I actually have been hearing, you know, I hear that this, this, that your willpower deteriorates. And I actually don't believe that. I think the more they say, oh, you know, throughout the day, your willpower, if you test it too many times, it gets weaker and weaker. And I actually Mm. don't believe that. I actually believe it gets stronger. Mine gets stronger. Mm. When I'm the more I hold the line, the stronger the hold is, the better the grip is. And that's day by day, you think? Day by day. Mm. Day by day. And normally, like, it's all together. It's all grouped together. When you wake up early and you get your workout in, it, it, you just stay on track. You're like, you know what? I'm not going to eat that food that I don't need right now. I'm not, yeah. you know, it's so much easier. But the day when you're like, oh, I didn't work. I woke up late and uh, I didn't get my workout done. And you know what? There's a donut. Right. You know, and it be, you break down. Yeah. So you want to you want to use the discipline. Discipline enforces discipline. Yeah. Discipline, more discipline makes more discipline. Yeah. It kind of seems like that it would be just like any other exercise right you're yeah. exercising your discipline so the, and may i don't know but maybe this is what that means when they say it, it your willpower wears down let's say you're trying to stick to this diet right mm-hmm. and you're going to be like hey i'm not going to let myself get too hungry because when i let myself get too hungry i know that donuts seem way more viable <laughs> donuts are not viable <laughs> but you know as far as the pay, pay off yeah uh you know detriment it, um, you know, it's like basically, so if I test my willpower, I'm just saying that throughout the span of a day or, mm-hmm. you know, however many hours when you start to get hungry. So they're saying, okay, so let's say you take your hunger to a certain point. Then you say, you know what? I'm going to stick, stick, stay strong. Usually I, I eat way before this, but I'm, and I'm real hungry. I really want those donuts, but you know what? I'm going to stick with it. Right. And you have that, that one experience mm-hmm. of taking your hunger to a certain point and still sticking to it. You do that you let your hunger go on for even more, that's your willpower wearing down, wearing down. But let's say you stuck to it, boom, and you stuck to it that day. Then the next day, you have experience going that far in your hunger, and you will be stronger and know how to deal with it. I I actually disagree with you. I think that when you stay strong, you get stronger. And when you break, like how often does this happen? I'll just have one bite of that donut. For me, every yeah. single time. And then you have that one bite of what happens. Yeah, that donut's getting yeah, crushed. Every single one bite, ten yeah. bites, same thing. So that's thing. what I'm saying. Stay strong. Hold your discipline yeah. in place. Yeah, so to comp- compare that to like a workout, right? So let's say I, I do a hard um, set of, I don't know, push-ups. Mm-hmm. Then I do another hard set of push-ups. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be less strong on that second set. And I do another set. Yeah, you I keep testing it. But the next day... Or the next week, I'm gonna have benefits from that workout. Yeah. So it does reinforce. Um, so the workout, the fatigue is that temporary fatigue. Then you recover from it, and then you're stronger in yeah. that way through that. But experience. I think the better example is like when you say no to the one bite, you're it's easier to say no to the whole donut. Yeah. When you say yes to the one bite, it's easier to say yes yeah. to the whole donut. So say no to donuts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Keep your discipline intact. Yeah, man. Discipline. Back to the book. Discipline can only be obtained when officers are so imbued with the sense of their awful obligation to their men and to their country that they cannot tolerate negligence. Officers who fail to correct errors or to praise excellence are valueless in peace and dangerous misfits in war. So he's giving equal, 
equal importance to correcting errors and praising excellence. You can see how important that is. And that's something that I've never been very good at. I was never a big praiser of excellence. Mm. And, and in reading this, I look back and say, I should have done that more. Officers must assert themselves by example and by voice. They must be preeminent in courage, deportment, and dress. One of the primary purposes of discipline is to produce alertness. A man who is so lethargic that he fails to salute will fail, will fall an easy victim to the enemy. So the discipline just keeps you on track. Combat experience has proven that ceremonies such as formal guard mounts, formal retreat formations, and regular and supervised reveille formations are a great help and in some cases essential to prepare men and officers for battle. To give them that perfect discipline, that smartness of appearance, that alertness without which battles cannot be won. And this is something, you know, the SEAL teams for sure are very undisciplined when it comes to uniforms when it comes to march i mean we don't march i mean we we barely can get in whenever whenever a bunch of seals have to do something militaristic it's usually a pretty we have to dumb it down and make it as easy as possible because we just don't do it enough mm-hmm. you know and and that's just that's i'm just i'm kind of stating that because we spend all of our time you know when we're when we're practicing for war we're not doing anything ceremonial we mm-hmm. practice for war so this is kind of a, a funny little dichotomy there is that seals generally are not ready for military inspection, but mm. they're ready for combat. So there's a little little hypocritical a little hypocritical uh, hypocritical item about that. Combat principles. Number one, there is no approved solution to any tactical situation. Little theme of creativity coming back again. Yeah. There's no approved solution. You've got to figure it out. Mm-hmm. There is only one tactical principle which is not subject to change. It is to use the means at hand to inflict the maximum amount of wounds, death, and destruction on the, in- on the enemy in the minimum amount of time. That's a pretty simple and straightforward principle. And according to General Patton, it does not change. Battles are won by frightening the enemy. Fear is induced by inflicting death and wounds on him. Death and wounds are produced by fire. Fire from the rear is more deadly and three times more effective than that from the front. But to get fire behind the enemy, you must hold him by frontal fire and move rapidly around his flank. Frontal attacks against prepared positions should be avoided if possible. I told you he was going to talk about flanks. He's talking about flanks. Catch the enemy by the nose with fire and kick him in the pants with fire in place through movement. That's flanks. You can never get too strong. Get every man and gun you can secure, provided it does not unduly delay your attack. I used to say, we, we'd try to figure out how many guys we'd bring on a mission, and I'd get some kind of you know restriction like, hey, we only want you to bring this many guys. And I'd say, well, this isn't soccer, where we're only allowed to bring 11 per side. <laughs> Why would I not bring 38 if I can bring 38? Why would I stop myself at 
27. Mm-hmm. You know, bring as many people as you can. Let's go. Let's yeah. rock and roll. The larger force and the more violence you use in the attack, whether it be men, tanks, or ammunition, the smaller will be your proportional losses. Violence of action is what we used to call that in the SEAL teams. Violence of action. Never yield ground. It is cheaper to hold what you have than to retake what you have lost. Never permit a unit to dig in until the final objective is reached. Then dig, wire, and mine. So you can't rest until you get to a good spot. I, I, this is a little statement I use a lot in jiu-jitsu, mm-hmm. coaching. Because people, they they get in a position and they rest before it's time to rest. Right. You know, you gotta, you gotta get the guard back. You've got it. If someone, if someone passes your guard, you don't, you don't settle there on your back and let them settle in and start mm-hmm. to smash you. As soon as someone passes your guard, you're recovering. You work. You don't, you don't settle down until you're back to a good position. Yeah. You can never I, do that. I noticed that. And I actually brought it up to you. Remember last, just last week or whatever, when we rolled and I was like, there's something that I noticed about you. That um, and that was that in the scramble, mm-hmm. you won't just settle and hang out in my guard. Mm-hmm. You don't even accept the guard. And we talked about it a guard. long time ago yeah. before, but it was really, for whatever reason, just really prevalent that day. That yeah, in the scramble, it, you know, scramble goes on for let's say a longer time. Let's say the scramble goes on for six seconds, right? Mm-hmm. It's a pretty long scramble. Mm-hmm. It seems like you still wouldn't. I'm you wouldn't even stop, stop the scramble no. until you're beyond the guard. Beyond the guard. You know? <laughs> yeah, you won't just hang out when me, I was, hey, I'll sit right in that guard and yeah. get my rest on. Yeah. But, um, and it's surprisingly, painfully effective. Yeah. When yeah. you do that. I was talking to Dean about that yesterday. If Dean is in a mindset where he's accepting a guard pass or he's accepting, it, it becomes a much, much, much easier game. Yeah. When he decides he's not going to let you settle, until he gets to the advantageous position, yeah. it's a nightmare. Yeah. Because he won't stop moving, and he's a good scrambler. Yeah. Yeah. You know what's interesting about these? I have a note in here that, you know, he said never yield ground, never permit a unit to dig in. He says never. And that's something that I don't say. Right. Because it takes away the fact that of what he said earlier about there's no written rule, there's no uh, approved method. Right. You, you shouldn't use that word never because yeah. – Sometimes you should yield ground. Right. And sometimes you should dig in even when the final objective is. So I know he's just being extreme, but it is. Yeah. I, I did make a note of that to point out. General training. Back to the book. More emphasis will be placed on the hardening of men and officers. All soldiers and officers should be able to run a mile with combat pack in 10 minutes and march 8 miles in 2 hours. The hardening of men and officers. He goes on to say... Sharpen axes, pickaxes, and shovels now and keep them sharp. That's just an attitude, right? <laughs> Look, the pickaxe that you're going to use to dig in, make it sharp in case you got to hack somebody's brain out. Keep it sharp. Yeah. Battles are fought by platoons and squads. Place emphasis on small unit combat instruction so that it's conducted in the same precision as close order drill. A good solution applied with vigor now is better than a perfect solution 10 minutes later. Common theme. Needless requirements. 
He's actually got a section here called Needless Requirements. There is a tendency, and I used to see this in the military, and I see it in businesses now. This is the needless requirements. There is a tendency for the chain of command to overload junior officers by excessive requirements in a way of training and reports. Mm. You will alleviate this burden by eliminating non-essential demands. You go to any business and they've got reports that people are generating and meetings that they're attending and conference calls. That's what this is about. Those are needless requirements. Mm. Get rid of them. Yeah, man, especially those meetings. Like, I think people just like meetings because it, it, um, it helps them think or feel like, like they're, doing something. they're doing something. You know yeah. what you do? You make meetings 20 minutes long. Brad, the, just call them on the phone. Yeah, or you just you, call them on the phone. Yeah. Yeah. But meetings, make, make your meetings 20 minutes long if you have to schedule them. Show up on the meeting ready to don't you don't need to learn anything. Let's know what we're going to talk about. Let's yeah. talk about the decision because that's what everyone needs to get on the phone for. It's for the decision. Yeah, you you can get informed by reading a quick bulleted list. So right. don't go over those bullets with me when I I already did that. Yeah, yeah. Unless they have questions or something like that. Like yeah, I, if you I got a question. That's that was, what I'm saying. That's the yeah. discussion piece. Yeah, meetings, man. Meetings. And then in the meeting, a lot of the time. Let's say there's a meeting of 10 guys and let's say three, four guys are, are discussing stuff and maybe they're trying to solve this problem that they specifically have. And then the other few guys, they feel compelled to want to be contributing to the meeting. So they say just more of the stuff that's so unnecessary just so they can have something to say in the meeting. Sidebar. Take it somewhere else. You've angered Echo, people. You've the angered stuff, Echo. Yeah, the, the meetings. Too, yeah. Keep them 20 minutes. There's a whole there's a whole lot of people in America, in business world, that are listening to that needless requirements, and they're thinking about the needless requirements that they fulfill on a daily basis, and it makes them angry. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a source of frustration. I talk to folks about it all the time. Mm-hmm. Like they feel like they don't have time to do their job, and we felt like that in the military. Mm-hmm. Like, oh my God, are you serious? We have to do you know, fill out this document, attend another call with the so-and-so commander. Just tell me, you know, give me the highlights and let me do my work. I got a job to do here, people. Infantry. Infantry must move in order to close with the... Infantry must move in order to close with the enemy. It must shoot in order to move. Again, there's cover and move. When physical targets are not visible, the fire of all infantry weapons must search the area occupied by the enemy. Use marching fire. It reduces the accuracy of his fire and increases our confidence. Shoot short. Ricochets make nastier sounds and wounds. That's something that they used to have us do all the time in the SEAL teams. So you, you don't you make sure you're shooting low. If you're going to make a mistake, aim low. So the so the rounds hit in front of where the enemy is, mm-hmm. and they ricochet up, and they hit him with all kinds of frag and rocks, and oh, gotcha. you have a chance of still hitting him. If you're shooting over their head and it misses him, it's yeah. gone. Gotcha. Interesting. To halt under fire is folly. To halt under fire and not fire back is suicide. And this is what we just talked about in jiu-jitsu. Mm-hmm. To halt under fire... That's what that's what you're doing. Yeah. When you when when you let me keep scrambling, when you stop scrambling, mm-hmm. that's when I'm going to get a little. Under fire. You're halting under fire, and guess what? It says here that that is suicide. <laughs> <laughs> Move forward out of fire. Officers must set the example. Few men are killed by the bayonet. Many are scared by it. Bayonets should be fixed when the firefight starts. 
Bayonets must be sharpened by the individual soldier. The German hates the bayonet and is inferior to our men with it. Our men should know this. Little psychological warfare here. Mm-hmm. You got to sharpen your own bayonet. You're better at it than the enemy. Put that thing on the end of your gun when the firefight starts and get ready to get some. Yeah, that's that's General Patton right there, keeping it real. I wanted to work for General Patton. Mm-hmm. Care of men. Officers are responsible not only for the conduct of their men in battle, but also for their health and contentment when not fighting. An officer, and this is where he's going back to the CEO and how they act, an officer must be the last man to take shelter from fire and the first to move forward. Similarly, he must be the last man to look after his own comfort at the close of a march. He must see that his men are cared for. The officer must constantly interest himself in the rations of the men. He should know his men so well that any sign of sickness or nervous strain will be apparent to him, and he can take such action as may be necessary. Same thing we were were talking about. Mm -hmm. And we're about to uh, wrap this up here with a couple more. And I kind of saved the best for last, to be quite honest with you. Such as this right here, command leadership. And this is a this is actually another letter of instruction. So again, this is just what you want to know what how General Patton thought. Here it is, his own words on what he wanted his men to know mm. as they prepared for combat. Leadership, full duty, each in his appropriate sphere will lead in person. Any commander who fails to obtain his objective and who is not dead or severely wounded has not done his full duty. Doesn't need to be much clearer than that. Yeah. There's your, there's your, there's your standard. If you're not dead or severely wounded and you haven't achieved your objective objective, you haven't done your full duty visits to the front. The commanding general or his chief of staff should visit the front daily The function of these is to observe, not to meddle. In addition to their own specialty, they must observe and report anything of military importance. Remember that praise is more valuable than blame. So if you're going to go to the frontline troops, don't go up there and blame them, praise them. Remember too that your primary mission as a leader is to see with your own eyes and be seen by your troops while engaged in personal reconnaissance. Execution. In carrying out a mission, the promulgation of the order represents not over 10% of your responsibility. The remaining 90% consists in assuring by means of personal supervision on the ground by yourself and your staff proper and vigorous execution. And that's one we already talked about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you put together the plan. Yeah, you disseminated the plan. That's great. Your job is to make it happen and ensure that it happens. Mm. Take ownership of it and execute it. Plans. Plans must be simple and flexible. Actually, they are only a form of data plane from which you build as necessity directs or opportunity offers. 
So he's saying that plan is just a just something to build off of mm-hmm. as as necessity directs or opportunity offers. I got asked this the other day at a at a at an event, you know, when do you know when it's time to change the plan? When I, I you know, when necessity directs mm-hmm. or opportunity offers. That's when you make the change. Mm-hmm. Plans should be made by the people who are going to execute them. Formal orders. Formal orders will be preceded by letters of instruction and by personal conferences. In this way, the whole purpose of the operation will be made clear together with the mission to be accomplished by each major unit. So he's saying the the, the whole purpose of the operation will be made clear. So that if during combat During combat, communication breaks down. Each commander can and must so act as to obtain the general objective. There you go. So if you understand what the overall broad mission is when we go out to attack and all of a sudden you're separated from us or you can't communicate with us anymore or something happens and you need to make an adjustment to your plan as long as you know what the broad mission is, the whole purpose of the operation, which later ended up being called the commander's intent. That's what we called it in the, in the modern military. As long as you know what the commander's intent is, what the intent of the operation is, then you can execute on your own. You don't need any more direction from me. Yep. Go and make it happen. Keep your own orders short. Get them out in time. Issue them personally by voice when you can. Keep troops informed. Use every means before and after combat to tell the troops what they are doing, to going, what they are going to do, and what they have done. Reiterating discipline. There is only one kind of discipline: perfect discipline. If you do not enforce and maintain discipline, you are potential murderers. You must set the example. Condition. High physical condition is vital to victory. We talked about that, and we talk about that all the time. Your physical conditioning. High physical condition is vital to victory. There are more tired corps and division commanders than there are tired corps and divisions. Fatigue makes cowards of us all. Men in condition do not tire. So you got to be in shape. And here's the close. And this is the last one. And it's the shortest one. And it's probably the most important one to remember from General Patton. Courage. Do not take counsel of your fears. And that's it. That's what he had to say about courage to all of his troops as they embarked on this intense combat day after day, week after week. You want to know what you do with your fear? Do not take counsel of your fears. No vote. They don't get a vote. Your Mm -hmm. fears don't get a vote. So next time you feel that 
fear no matter what it is. It's pretty easy. You, you don't take counsel of it. They get no vote. That's General Patton. Great book. Great leader. Lots to learn. Lots to pass on. War as I knew it. Questions from the interwebs. Yeah. First question. Jocko Willink, is BJJ really practical for street defense where there are no rules? My understanding is that it doesn't fare well against knives and multiple attackers compared to something like Krav Maga, Muay Thai, boxing. So this is a good question, obviously. And it's a question that we get a lot. I get a lot. Uh, I actually did a video. We did a video like this, and Tim Ferriss put it out. So you can look for that if you kind of want to hear another version of this. Maybe we could link to it on Jocko Podcast. I think we can do that, yeah. Excellent. Um, what, okay, so self-defense. We're, we're talking about true self-defense here. First and foremost, most important thing, and I actually didn't say this on the last video, but I should say it now, is situational awareness mm-hmm. and putting yourself in good situations where bad things are not going to happen to you and doing that to the best of your ability and being aware of your surroundings. Mm-hmm. That's a, the very important first step in self-defense. Second, guns. Uh, if you are a person that really needs to defend yourself and you live in a horrible area and there's violent people around and you might be a small, a very small person or you might be elderly or you might have some sort of a physical limitation, then how you're going to defend yourself is using guns, using a gun. So... I mean that that's just that's just the way it is. Now, okay, so that being said, uh maybe you can't have a gun, maybe you don't have a gun, and you don't always want to have to pull a gun out. Mm-hmm. Even though a gun is a great deterrent, and most people if they see that you have a gun are not going to want to fight you anymore. Mm-hmm. But obviously you can't be just yanking a gun out at anything that happens and you don't always have them with you. For instance, You know, in certain places, you're not allowed to have a gun. Certain states, you're not allowed to have a gun. In the the water, if you're surfing, you're not allowed to have a gun. Uh, So, what do you do? How does jiu-jitsu stack up against these other martial arts? I say that you should learn jiu-jitsu first. It should be the first martial art that you try and learn to defend yourself. And there's a reason for that. There's a bunch of reasons for that. Number one, and sort of a base reason, but jiu-jitsu is probably the most complex to learn. There's the it's the it's the most three-dimensional martial art. It's not linear. It's very three-dimensional. There's a ton to learn, and it's infinite in what you can learn. So you want to get into it early because it's going to take longer to learn. But that's that's actually a secondary reason. The primary reason to learn jiu-jitsu first is because of the nature of self-defense situations. So, 
we are born with our primary form of self-defense and we learn it from a very young age and our primary form of self-defense will keep you safe from most of these situations and that is running mm -hmm. and using your legs to run so and if you think of now think about this you're kind of chuckling because you don't understand the gravity of what I'm saying because it's very accurate. Mm -hmm. So listen, we're talking about self-defense. We're not talking about offense. We're talking about defense. How do right. you stay safe? Yeah. So if I square off with you and I want to fight and punch you, run away. I, I, I'm not holding on to you. Right. I, I run away. If there's me and three of my friends run away. If I have a knife and I'm going to try and stab you, run away. Mm -hmm. So all these kind of attacks, they're a disconnected attack. I'm not holding on to you. Mm -hmm. So run away from me. Get out of there. Run into a public place. Run to where there's other people that can help you. Yep. Run. Where this changes is when somebody grabs a hold of you. Mm -hmm. When somebody grabs a hold of you, you can no longer run away. And you have to be able to make them ungrab you, mm -hmm. let go of you. Yeah. And how do you do that? You do that by knowing how to grapple. And grappling is jujitsu. So... That is why the first thing you should learn is jujitsu. Mm. Because if someone's not grabbing a hold of you, run away from them. If someone's trying to square off and, and go toe to toe with you, run away from them. If there's five guys that want to fight you, run away from them. If someone pulls out a knife on you, run. Mm -hmm. But here's the deal. If that person knocks you down and gets on top of you, you can't run anymore. So what do you have to do? You have to grapple them and you have to know jujitsu mm -hmm. to, <laughs> to get them up and off of you and get away from them or submit them and put them to sleep or break their arm. Mm -hmm. That is why you should start with jujitsu. Pretty straightforward. Agreed. Once you know jujitsu, absolutely. Learn Muay Thai. Learn wrestling, learn boxing, learn Krav Maga, learn Eskrima, learn everything you can about fighting. Do it, of course, but set your base with the one that you're going to need if somebody grabs you, and that's jujitsu. The other thing about jujitsu is it's pretty easy to add in some of these other more animalistic self-defense situations mm. so if somebody grabs you and pulls you to the ground and you want to get away from them yeah you can you need to know your body positions but it's pretty easy to decide you're going to bite their ear off or big, take a big chunk out of their face with your teeth right. or jam your fingers into their eyes it's it's not hard to augment that stuff yeah so these are all things that you can do within jujitsu that jujitsu does not hamper that ability to be savage in your attacks on people. Yeah, that, and that's interesting you bring up because 
everyone's heard the guy where he'll be like, hey, what's that jujitsu or whatever? And then, I don't know, you show him or you explain it. And they'll be like, oh, well, I'll just, I'll, I just gouge your eyes out right here. Mm-hmm. Or I just, um, you know, I don't know, strike your throat or something like this, right? So take the eye gouging um, option. You don't have to be trained to eye gouge, so we both will eye gouge each mm-hmm. other. Like if you if we're gonna go eye gouging, yeah, I've had people try and eye gouge me before. Yeah. it's not gonna stop me, and, that's and it a, hasn't stopped that's me. That's the second point. Um, uh, Sarah's brother, we was after like metamorphs. We we're talking, and he 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 basically did that. He was asking questions. He'd be like, "No, I won't learn. I don't have to learn jujitsu. I would just do this." And he'd like, he's like, "I know like pressure points mm. that subdue people." And I was like, "Yeah, okay." So I said, "Okay." Him and Darth Vader. Yeah, exactly. So I was like, okay, well, what's the pressure point, though? So I was like, okay, do the pressure point on me. I won't even, like, fight you back. And he did the one, like, here by the neck. Mm -hmm. And I was like, not only does that not hurt right now. I mean, I can see it. It hurts more than if you did it here. But not only does that not really hurt that much right now. If if we were in any kind of fight situation, I don't even think I would even notice that. (laughs) So he was like, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, let me get this one. And he did one like behind my ear and then one yeah. in my ribs. Same exact thing. It's, yeah, it's, it's more sensitive for sure. Yeah. But in it's a, not going to stop in a fight, anybody. Man, I, it, yeah, it's, it simply does not work. But the jujitsu, if you know jujitsu, you can still do all those things if you want to do it, but you don't even have to. Yeah, because you're going to put them to sleep. Yeah. And I would say, even in my opinion, more accurately, jujitsu will help you or it'll give you the ability to control the fight. Oh, for sure. So you can, like, if you, jiu-jitsu, you're not going to learn how to throw, like, a sick left hook or nothing like that. You're not going to learn that. Um, but you'll control the fight where if you want to punch someone, you'll be in the perfect position to punch them, mm-hmm. no matter how much punching training you have. You can mm-hmm. have no punching training. You can just, I don't know, just throw your fist at them in whatever capacity. It'll be way more effective when you know jiu-jitsu. And that goes for any other one of these moves that people say they'll do if you do jujitsu on them. Yeah. You know, you're yeah. the one going to control the fight. I've tried all, all those people have come to me and I've gone through them all. It's yeah. no factor. The pressure points, the this, the that. It doesn't work. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry to tell you. It might work like, you know, the wrist ones. If yeah. you sit there yeah. and let them do yeah. it and be like, okay, yeah, that hurts. And but... also going against someone that's completely untrained, you can have some sort of success with some of this stuff. Right. But yeah. not against go... a determined attacker. Yeah, and that's a, that was kind of the point where it's a, yeah, I'd say, yeah, it might work if you let them do it, but that's the thing. You don't let them do it. So yeah. re- ultimately, it, Learn the likelihood of that working is very, very low, just in yeah. the spirit of fairness. And jiu-jitsu is fun. Yeah. It's creative. Yes. It's a good workout. It ups your confidence. It gets you used to com- combative situations where you're going 100%. Yeah. It gets you used to having someone grind on you and try and smash you. And that's a big deal that I it didn't even deal. think about. Yeah. Where just having someone in, in girls especially or just people who aren't used to confrontation. Yeah. Man, when you get in a fight. It inoculates you to the terror of having somebody yeah, just all up grinding on up on you and trying to smash you. In, I want to say it was UFC four mm-hmm. which one was the one with art jimerson with the one glove was that no that was one that was one okay yeah. so he got mounted and tapped yeah and man that's a perfect example he didn't get 
punched. You know, he didn't tap from any kind of punch or submission hold. He got mounted. And yeah. then in an interview later I saw, he said, man, I was just feeling claustrophobic up over there. And if you watch it, he wasn't mounted for very long. No. He was just, man, he just wasn't used to that. And in, imagine if that was a real-life fight. Someone attacks you and they're like mounted oh. on you and you don't know. Ooh, man, yeah. you can't tap. Man, you, you're not going to be able it's to handle nightmare. that. But if you know jiu-jitsu, you get mounted. That's No factor. Some people... They know Mount Escape so good where they hope they get mounted so they can get on top, you know? And then so you compare those two sides of the spectrum, jiu-jitsu. Mm-hmm. Know the jiu-jitsu. Know the jiu-jitsu. Yeah. Next. Next question. Can you expand on how to appropriately, effectively, and tactfully lead up the chain of command in a profession that's considered to be very paramilitary? My line of work sometimes works against us, limiting limiting ideas and ways of doing things. Yeah, and they're talking about the tradition in their line of work. Mm. Uh, okay, so what do you do? You got a organization you're working in, and you've how do you lead up the chain of command? Well, e- even in a paramilitary organization, which you know infers that this is a very hierarchical structure. And it's chain of command driven. And how do you possibly get your boss to do what you want them to do? Mm. Well, it's actually fairly simple. Fairly simple. Not easy, but simple. It is It is hard to do. It does take a lot more. It does take a lot of tact. takes a lot of patience. So number one, you got to build trust. you got to build trust with your the people that are above you in the chain of command, you got to build a relationship. You got to be proactive. You got to stay ahead. You know, when I joined the military, I one you know one day just told my dad, "Hey, by the way, I joined the I enlisted in the Navy. I'll be I'll be gone in three weeks or whatever." My dad just looked at me and shook his head and he says, "You're gonna hate the military because you hate authority. You don't listen to anybody." And I was kind of a young stupid kid and I'm like whatever I'm going in the SEAL teams it's a team (laughs) we don't have to listen to anybody of course I was completely wrong and Mm -hmm. you do listen to people and you do have a chain of command but he was right in the fact that I didn't like to listen to people and I didn't like authority so how did I get ahead of that it was pretty easy what I did to get ahead of that was I got ahead of it Mm -hmm. and that's what you need to do here you have to start that start that attitude of where you're doing what needs to be done before you get told to do it. Mm-hmm. So you start to appear to have more knowledge and good foresight of what's going to happen. Now you got to be careful that you're not showing up the boss. You right. can't be flaunting in their face and I already did that, you know, because I'm so much better than you. That's not right, the goal right. here. The goal is to build confidence, not to build animosity. You don't want to build animosity. You want to build trust. You want to build confidence. You want to make that person start to realize how good you are. Mm-hmm. Again, be careful not to throw it in their face. Now, the tradition piece. And and sometimes people do cling on to the traditions. Mm-hmm. And they use the traditions to shut down evolution. And that's bad. Because what they're really doing is they're protecting their world they're protecting their existence Mm. and so that's a that's a big wall 
That's a big, hard wall to get through. Now, most people do have traditions, and traditions, what are traditions built on? Do we build traditions? Are there traditions of failure and we're proud of that? Right. Are there traditions of losing and we're proud of that? No, no, no. Yeah. The traditions are proud traditions. Mm-hmm. They're traditions of winning. They're traditions of excellence. And in some way, traditions of excellence and traditions of winning and traditions of domination have to be tied in some way to evolving and to adapting and to getting better. Because that's how we win. That's how we dominate. So you have to find that hole in the tradition, that part of the tradition that implies that what we do in our tradition is we get better. That's all it is. You just got to find that thing that says we get better. We win. And you take that and you carry that that lead, that little crack in the armor of tradition. Mm. And you turn that into, you know, yeah, we have a proud tradition because we're the best. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to be the best, does the best stagnate? No, the best evolves. And again, you got to be careful. You can't throw this in their face. Yeah. you got to say, hey, you know what? Our tradition is that we're the best. We right. make things happen and we get things done. Mm-hmm. And we always do it better than everyone else. So you know what? Here's one way we could do it better. Yeah, if yeah. we did this, you got to look for those little cracks in the tradition mm-hmm. to bring forward change. Now, again, m- the most important this thing though is you've got to continue to build that relationship with your superiors. Mm-hmm. You're constantly trying to build that. And I've said this before and I'll say it again. No matter who I ever worked for, I had the same relationship with the crazy boss, with the knucklehead boss, with the loser, with the great guy. Had the same relationship all the time and that was they trusted me. Mm. Didn't matter who I worked for. So you got to build that relationship of trust. You've also got to be careful that as you're trying to be proactive and as you're trying to get things done, that you're not looking to do it for your own ego to get credit Mm. because that disturbs the people at the top. And it makes them say, oh, he's just trying to shine. He's just trying to look good. Screw him. Throw his ideas out. That's what you got to watch out for. So that's your ego. Mm. Don't make your ego fight their ego because they've got an ego too. You want to let your ego go. Build that relationship. Make the change slow. It's going to be slow, steady, and it's going to take persistence in the long war. Mm-hmm. You've got to have patience. Tradition doesn't break down overnight. Tradition takes time to morph. So you've got to be ready for that long war. And don't get frustrated. You're part of a winning team. You're part of a team that has a proud tradition. You just got to add to that tradition and that's going to take time. Mm-hmm. That's how you do it. Next question. Hi guys. How about on a podcast, you talk about what is the essential equipment for a home gym? Um, okay. So for me, first of all, if you have nothing, if you're building from zero, the first thing you need is pull-up bars, a pull-up bar, and a dip bar. Uh, somewhere to do dips and somewhere to do pull-ups. And, and that's what you need. Now, be careful if you're listening and you're like, okay, I'm going to go buy a pull-up bar and a dip bar. Don't get the little flimsy-looking things that cost $129. You don't want that. 
It's almost worthless. It's better than nothing, mm-hmm. but is almost worthless. You want to get a legit dip bar and a legit pull-up bar. Dip bars are a little bit easier. You can go you can go pretty cheesy on dip bars, mm-hmm. but pull-up bars you can't. Pull-up bars you need something legit strong. You can bolt it to your wall, but you need a nice pull-up bar with a with a inch and a half or a two-inch metal pipe. I still have a pull-up bar that I bought from Home Depot. Uh, I bought it in 1998. Okay. I've had it ever since. And it's bolted on to my squat rack. Mm. But that's all it is. A piece of, you know, two-inch pipe. And that's what you do pull-ups on. So when you say make sure it's legit, why is that? So you don't – so it doesn't break while you're using it, basically? Yeah, and also it's got to have some weight to it so you can do kipping pull-ups so you're not – the thing's not shaking all over the place. You get – you see these – I mean, this is just going total cheese ball. The things with like the foam handles that just rotate and fall off and they're just – it's just a nightmare. You want to – what you need is a pipe. <laughs> That's yeah. what you need is a piece of pipe from Home Depot. Mm. Uh and and then you need somewhere to do dips. Now, one thing that you can do that will cover both these is you can get rings. Mm. You know, gymnastics rings. Right, right. And you can have you can adjust the height of the rings and you can do dips and pull-ups on rings and then you can do muscle-ups as well. So, rings are almost a like if there's one thing you could have, if you could have one piece of equipment for working out, it'd probably be smart to go with just wooden rings. Mm. Uh because that they are that flexible and you can do that much different stuff. I mean, you can do dips, you can do muscle ups, you can do pull ups, you can do push ups, mm-hmm. you can do all kinds of stuff. You yeah. can do levers, you can do front levers, back levers. There's all kinds of gymnastics moves you can do. I mean, you could basically work for the rest of your life on rings and be good to go. So rings are a way of handling the whole pull up and dip bar situation. But and that's why it's pretty much the number two thing for me is is pull-up bar, dip bar, slash rings, because those are all going to kind of get you those basic body movements to build your strength. Mm -hmm. Uh, Once you get past that, now it's time for a squat rack. It's got to have a squat rack. And as soon as you have a squat rack now, my my squat rack has a pull-up bar on it, which I bolted on myself. My squat rack is the same year when I bought my first house immediately had a garage gym it was 20 i don't know 27 years ago or something like that built a garage gym immediately bought a squat rack still have the same squat rack bolted a pull-up bar onto it still have that i modified it a little bit and made dip bar so i had a dip bar on it this is before you could buy gymnastic rings or i didn't know how to get a hold of gymnastics rings mm. back in those days and then the next thing that you need is you need um an olympic lifting bar and and bumper plates and so you can do your squats your cleans your clean and jerks your deadlifts and all your basic strength movements um after that for me i think kettlebells um you know so now you have you can do your swings you can do your farmer's walks you can do your snatches you can i mean there's a ton of exercises turkish get-ups i mean there's a ton of exercises that you can do there that kettlebells now add to the situation Mm -hmm. and you can do some really psychotic conditioning metabolic conditioning with the addition of kettlebells as well 
at this point, if you only have one set of rings, I have three sets of rings, and I have one that's high for muscle-ups. I have one that's medium for dips, and I have one that's low for, for push-ups, and I just have those all the time, so then you don't have to adjust them because I guess I'm too lazy to want to adjust my rings all the time. Yep. The next piece for me is I like rowers, the Concept 2 rowers. I have mm-hmm. one. I've had it for a long time. They're a brutal workout. I think that you can just destroy yourself very easily and very quickly. And I think like a like an Airdyne or an Air Assault type bike, I don't have one of those. I'm probably going to get one very soon. But I think those are outstanding as well. I didn't say jump rope earlier. That's another good kind of cardio, kind of Metcon, kind of get after it. And then maybe some medicine balls. Um. And after that, I mean, I think, you know, the the question was essential equipment. To me, that's sort of my list. Yeah. And then from there, it just becomes fun. You know, it becomes what kind of other implements can I bring into the situation that are going to eliminate boredom, increase uh, creativity, increase dynamic and functional movement. And I think these, these are pretty good. And this is all stuff that's pretty common nowadays. There's a bunch of pl- different places to get it and make it happen yeah especially especially when you kind of start with kind of one thing and you slowly just add on yeah and essential that's kind of a complex question anyway to, to begin with and you did say for you mm-hmm. right so it, re- it depends on what kind of gym you're doing like what kind of results you want you know well so if everyone that's listening to this podcast wants to just peak physical conditioning in a broad array of of environments and tasks. Right. I would assume that as well, but it's not necessarily a fact. So like, I'm just saying if they have different goals, but name it's going to look different. Name a goal that won't be covered by this. You can't do it. If they want to get their bench up. Okay. That's, that's one. <laughs> you need if a bench. You, if you want, if you want to get your bench up, you need a bench. Yeah. Yeah. I think your list was pretty elaborate. Cause so a, just my opinion. Oh, because so, you're going to break it down because you're like a minimalist over here when yeah. it comes to working out? <laughs> no. Let's hear a minimalist. Well, essential equipment, right? I, I would say that, man, it depends. So, yeah, okay. For, for, it if doesn't you, depend. If you want, uh, yes, it depends on what you, what results you want. So if you just want to be a, a bodybuilder with, with big muscles. Go to listen to look, a different podcast. <laughs> That's not the question, though. The question. The people that are asking these questions are listening to this podcast. They're into physical mm-hmm. fitness. They want to be healthy. They want to be jujitsu players. They want to be fighters. They want yeah. to be able to functionally move well. They want to stay healthy. They're not yeah. just getting their bodybuilder on. Okay, that still is an assumption, though. But yes, it's a correct assumption. For the, for the sake of efficiency, <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and and. and I'm gonna let you. I'll tell you what. Make that you assumption have as well. One minute to complete no. your list. <laughs> no, no, no. It's not about completing the list. I was gonna elaborate a little bit more, but do no. I think that no. I, I actually I agree with you. You don't have any elaboration. There's one more thing you probably added a bench on there. Yeah. Is that what you'd add on? Anything yes. else? Yeah, or, so, or anything that would that would yeah that would facilitate the same thing a bench would facilitate. Other than that, it's pretty uh pretty good list, I think. Yeah, I think that's 
a, a, yeah, that's a big time list. That, I, I think that's the deluxe list, though, man. <laughs> I think you could cut a few well, of those like off I said, and still get no, good results. It's, it's, a, it's an escalation, though. Yeah. If someone's listening right now and they're like, you know what, I'm going to go get in shape. First thing you do right, is get a set right. of rings that you can do pull-ups. That's number yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. Then you can get a squat rack. Then you the squat rack's gonna come with a pull up bar and a dip bar somehow, so you're good there. Then you then you got to get the bar and bumper plates, mm-hmm. right? Which you can escalate. You can start with a you can start with just a bar, and you know two twenty five pound bumper plates, yeah. and then every month buy another forty five pounds yeah. or a hundred pounds or whatever, and you're good. After you see those gains, yeah. After you start jacking the big. Here's steel. the thing though about um, home gyms. Is if you work out at home, especially this, these kinds of workouts, you get more of a testosterone boost if you work out at a at a public gym, like at a 24-hour fitness or CrossFit gym or something. Which something. one gives you more? If you work out – well, basically if you work out in front of people, if there's other people oh. around – you, you get a testosterone boost How more so than you would. It's it's this thing um, where, I don't know, it's this weird, some guy did an experiment a long time ago where, um, I don't know how long ago, but he did an experiment where he found out all these little things that you can do in front of people that'll boost your testosterone. One was um, like drive a car, like a certain kind of car. And if you do it in front of people, mm-hmm. it boosts your testosterone. So if you and not only do you get get that, you get um, psycho mental priming as well. So when you walk in the gym, like the CrossFit gym, mm-hmm. all the smells, the sounds and all that basically primes your mind and your physiology for a workout. Hmm. So, so I'll tell you, at home, I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm sure you could do that. I don't think it would it would replace that actually being there. Just that part of it. I'm not saying home gyms yeah. are junk. I'm not saying that at all. Yeah, no, because um, when I walk in my home gym. You are primed. I feel primed. I, I <laughs> yeah. love it. Yeah. See, and and that's part of it as well. So, um, the whole reason the whole reason I set up a home gym was so I don't have to make that drive to the gym and you know get all. But that kind of works against. It's interesting you. that you use that. Like I say, hey, I have a home gym, mm-hmm. so I can just be alone in the in the cavern of doom <laughs> and just get after it and know, no one will bother me and I can be alone in my pain world of pain and proving myself. Yeah. And you're, you did it cause you're too lazy to go to the gym. <laughs> yeah. To make that drive. It's just more of a pain. I can save yeah, some time. Yeah. Right. Which, which it is an efficiency thing for sure. Yeah. But that efficiency thing can, can depends on who on, you are. Yeah. It, you. It'll backfire. Like for example, I'll be like, Hey, I, I don't have to, you feel like you don't have to get the most out of your workout because I could just come right back here, you know, in an hour when I quote unquote feel better or when I feel more like doing it or the TV's right there and look, yeah. hey, the, the so whatever's it's just a lack on. Of oh, big time lack it's of a discipline. lack of discipline. Yeah, it can be. And if you're looking for helpers for that discipline, a home gym, it could go either way, man. Yeah, it depends on who you are. I, I personally, the, the, I'm able to work out sometimes only because I have a home gym. Yeah. You know, in other words, right. if my time is in a day, yeah. is, I'll get up super early. And if I wouldn't be able to hit my own gym quickly in 30 minutes and get a workout in, I wouldn't be able to get, it would take me 30 minutes to just get to gym and back. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I recommend if you make a home gym, you do it in a positive way <laughs> to increase your discipline. <laughs> That's what I recommend. Yeah. I like how, you know, how your home gym is kind of separate. From my house? Yeah, like yeah. Where you have to kind of go yeah. to it. Yeah, so I do get to escape. Uh, yeah, I feel like that that's a big 
factor. Mine is like right outside next to the barbecue. Yeah. You know, next to the little. You, you know, don't know whether you want to. Yeah, I don't know if I'm cruising or, or lifting, you know? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, rough. it depends. It's rough for Echo <laughs> Doesn't know if he's cruising or lifting. <sighs> next question. Okay, podcast question. Uh, how does it feel? To do Tim Ferriss podcast, Joe Rogan podcast, and get thousands of followers listening to your podcast, uh, reading your book, etc. Do you worry that some of your fans place you on a pedestal and engage in hero worship? Yeah, so this is a question that I was actually not going to do because I was a little bit uncomfortable with it. And then I was like, okay, why are you uncomfortable with it? It's not that big of a deal. It, it Although I will say, like, it does make me feel uncomfortable to think of people thinking of me in a heroic way or whatever uh that does feel strange to me uh as far as being on rogan and ferris and and sam harris and doing some of these podcasts uh it's you know it was it was really cool it's definitely you know, meeting people all the time as I travel and meeting people that have read, read our book and, and have gotten a lot out of it, you know, and that, that feels very rewarding. You know, it feels very rewarding. It feels great when someone says, Hey, you know, I use this chapter or Hey, your book. I mean, people are saying that, okay, your book changed my life. And I take that with a grain of salt, but it feels, it feels good. It feels positive. You know, it feels, I like that, you know, I want to help people. And so that feels good. But as far as it's not that like, like my social media presence, which I had zero before mm-hmm. and now I have it and it's, it, it, it's not really that big of a deal because it's just me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm still just me and there's no, there's nothing um, that's different or has changed. And when we talk about doing this podcast, we don't talk about how we should act or how I should act to get more people to listen to it. I'm only doing what I'm doing because this is me. And I'm not going to be different in order to achieve anything else. I'm only going to be who I am. And that's why the thought of people putting me on a pedestal or whatever, that's, I know that I'm just a person. And, And I think that it might be how, how I get presented, you know, by the media, how I get presented even on this podcast. When I'm on this podcast talking to you, we're talking about specific subjects that, we are interested in and it's not you know i could see where someone might think oh you know jocko's this super you know superhuman and and no i know i'm not so if i come across like that it's only because you're seeing a a sliver of me that appears that way right you know i'm not saying i know i'm not totally normal as well i mean i know i'm not a normal person i know i'm a little bit to the to the edge of, you know, being a little bit extreme. Yeah. A little bit extreme ish in some ways. And I know a lot of that just has to do with my habits as a person. Mm -hmm. Uh, but the, the fact of the matter is 
that no matter what happens and no matter what I come across and, and no matter what people might perceive me as, I don't perceive myself as special or as a hero for sure. Because, and, and one thing that will not, that will always stay with me is that I've been in combat and I've been humbled by combat. Mm -hmm. And I think that I've been on the battlefield and I've been confused and I've been outmaneuvered and I've had my guys killed. And so I know what a real hero is Mm -hmm. and it ain't me. And that's always going to keep me grounded and I will never forget that. Yeah. And you, um, as far as being worried about people putting you on a pedestal, like how you're saying you just, you be you, you, and that's all you're going to do is be you. You're not trying to live up to anyone's expectation. That's, that was never a goal of yours. No. So if someone has an expectation, since that's not your goal, how can you worry about it? You're going to continue to be you. And I think, I don't know if it's irony, but the more you do that and just be just authentic or whatever, it seems to draw more people to you. I I guess, but I don't know because I'm not acting any other way than I acted a year ago or, you know, four years ago. I'm just, you know what I do? I train jujitsu. I work out. I wake up early in the morning. I try and get smarter. I, uh, try and do better. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, that's what I do. Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, I, I'm just gonna, you know, I'm me and I actually, I'll tell you, this is interesting is that people that I interact with now, I, I, I enjoy it and I get something out of it. I'm yeah. taking away, they're giving me as much inspiration as I'm giving them. Yeah. You know, there's one girl on the, on the, on Twitter mm-hmm. and I don't want to say her name. Cause I, I mean, it's uh, I don't know how I don't, I don't like to disrupt people's privacy. Right, I mean, right. she's on Twitter, but mm-hmm. she's a, a, clearly a little bit of an older lady. She's, um, she's a cancer survivor. I mean, when I say older, I mean, she's in her, at least in her sixties mm-hmm. and, and she put a picture on the internet the other day on Twitter of her, at the gym and she's got, you know, like a kettlebell, um, a medicine ball and an oxygen tank <laughs> in the game. Cause she's, cause she's in there working out Yeah, and she's, yeah, I got to bring my oxygen tank because of what, you know, I, I don't know, know specifically why, mm-hmm. but Hey man, if she can bring an oxygen tank to the gym and get after it mm-hmm. at, you know, age 65 or 70, you know, that's inspiring oh, <laughs> and, yeah. and I can get up and get after it and do my piece just, you know, just to, at least just as well as, as she could. And, yeah. and so I think that that's, I think that's what's, what's been interesting about this is seeing other people that are fired up mm-hmm. and, and, you know, that's, that's another thing that kind of happened early on in this journey for me. I have not a bunch of friends. But 
one of my friends, who's a SEAL, when I was just about, I think I had recorded the Tim Ferriss podcast, and I, I knew it was going to be released, and I knew it was going to be heard by, by people. And when, when I did, when I got back, I, I texted my friend Mm -hmm. and I said, Hey, uh, I did this podcast and it's going to be released and I'm going to be one of them. And what I meant by that was one of these guys that sold out for lack of a better word. And I'm out there. You know, oh, I'm a Navy SEAL and I'm the biggest, baddest guy because there's plenty of those guys out there. Yeah. And now I'm going to be one of those guys. And so I said, I said, I'm going to be one of them now. Mm-hmm. Sorry. And he wrote me back and he said, that's awesome. And we got so many guys running around saying all kinds of stuff. You should be out there representing. You should be. And he went on to say something even more powerful. And he said, you know what? There's a lot of people in this world that need a role model, that need a dad. Mm -hmm. I needed a dad. I needed a father figure. And that's what you were for me. And for you to go out there and be out there in the world and be that role model for other people. It's awesome, and you should do it, and I love the fact that you're doing it. Yeah. And when he wrote that to me, it kind of changed my attitude. Yeah. Because I did look at the role models that people look at, and I said to myself, and, and again, I think part of what might make me a good role model is that I don't think I'm a good role model because I'm still trying to get better, and I've yeah. done all kinds of stupid stuff. We need to have... A dozen podcasts on the stupid things I've done in my life and, mm-hmm. and talk about the mistakes I've made growing up and all the just, I mean, I'm, that's another thing. Like when you, when people see me on the podcast or they hear me on the podcast or they read the book, they're seeing the good part, yeah. right? They're seeing, I would hesitate to say, but they're seeing the best part of me. Right, right. They're seeing a mature person. I'm not that mature, but they're seeing, they're seeing the older, the maturest that I've ever been, which is right now. Mm-hmm. They're not seeing the idiot, you know, growing dummy that I was and that many of us were when we were younger. Yeah. Now, might I have had a little edge? A little bit of advantage. Maybe I was a little bit ahead in some cases, but man, I didn't, you know? Yeah. And so that, when I got that text, that was a series of texts from, uh, from my brother, that really gave me a different attitude on this whole thing and it made me feel more comfortable with the fact that I was selling out and that I was now going to be out there in the public view. And, and all this being said at some point, I'm probably going to go right back to the, to the cave that I came from. And I'm, 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 I don't want, um, 
you know, I don't have what Patton had, which was just like this huge desire to be famous. I have no problem not being, I I was unrecognizable to the world for my whole life. Mm. And the fact that I'm a little bit recognizable now, it doesn't make me feel great. It doesn't do anything for me. I'm just, just doing what I do. It's not my goal, but there, is there a goal to try and help some people out there? Yes. And I think hearing that from that buddy of mine made me solidify that goal a little bit. And again, not to try and say, hey, be like me. No, it's to say, learn from what I learned from. I did some dumb stuff. I've been through some stuff that most people don't have to go through. So if you can take something away from it, awesome. You know, don't worship me by any stretch. But let's work together and see if we can get better as a team. Yeah, and you're a good, like, uh, some... A lot of your messages and the things that you say, a lot of it is new, and then a lot of it's not new, right? No. So, and so this is one point where, and some of this stuff people may have heard before, but someone like you who's done what you've done, and and think the way you think and do what you do right now, you're the perfect medium for that for that information to get passed on to someone. You know how like. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're a teenager or something, your dad tells you to do something, your mom tells you to do something, you're like, yeah, fuck that. But then when you go, and then you go to your friend's house, and then, like, he tells you to do it, the exact same thing, and you're yeah. like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it just, it takes that same message, but from someone who you can, for lack of a bit, better way of putting it, someone you can accept it from. Mm-hmm. And so all your messages are perfectly in line with who you are, so they're so, like, you're so eager to accept them. You know, mm-hmm. so like how you post, you know, online, you'll post a picture of your watch every morning and your kind of the workout setting and stuff like that. Um, and your kind of your message um, more or less is get up every morning and get your work done, get a workout in whatever. And then you're doing it. And there's the proof right there. Mm-hmm. So if you're just some dude, it's like, yeah, work out every day and you don't do it. Then it's like, yeah, it's going to be harder, harder to accept. So people will get those messages. And they'll 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 internalize them way more readily from someone like you, given the messages that you're 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 um, you're sending. That's one. Two, the whole broadcasting yourself thing mm-hmm. um, is is totally understandable for for someone like you, and that that it's good that you kind of got your kind of got turned on to the notion that it's more you have really good messages and good content that will improve people. In, in their life, whether it be older people, younger people, girls, guys, everything. And this is, especially like a podcast situation or even like certain online profiles and stuff, they're good ways to get that information out that people need, man. Like to improve themselves. Like if you're in a, in a, in a neighborhood or an environment with a bunch of people improving themselves, that's going to be a good neighborhood. And if they have the means to improve themselves, then that's a, a good service that you're putting out there, and, and and to reach as many people as you do, you're essentially you're helping the world with your message. Well, okay, <laughs> I'm telling you. So I'm saying, broadcasting yourself is a good thing. Yeah, it's it definitely was a hard thing to to overcome the the uh, the aversion. Yeah. To broadcasting yourself, which right. is something I, you know, that I talked about with Tim Ferriss and I talked about it with J- Joe Rogan is this idea of people that are talking. Yeah. And, you know, you look at the extreme examples of social media, you know, abusers, abusers and yeah. worthlessness. Yeah. You know, 
and and you just don't want to have anything to do with them. Yeah. And when you're when you're doing it, regardless of how much you don't want to have anything to do with them, mm-hmm. you have something to do with them because you're doing it too. And yeah. it's very difficult for me not to feel like that. Now, obviously, I've gotten over it. I mean, right. I, I've gotten over it to a point where I'm saying, okay, these are kind of the acceptable parameters that I operate within f- for my personality, right. you know, which is there's things that I haven't done and I won't do on social media, right. you know, yeah. because I'm not there to promote me. Yeah. Um, but I'm there to only open a door of observation. I would yeah. say not to, not to knock on people's door and enter, mm-hmm. but just to open the door of observation and say, this is how I try to live. Mm hmm. And this is the steps that I take to try and live that way. Observe. Yeah. And and if you want to enter my house and hang out with me, come on in. Yeah. As long as you're like-minded and, and you have the same sort of goals, then come on in. And, right. and you know what? You're going to make me stronger. Yeah. You're going to bolster me up. Yeah. You, you, I, so many people now, they're posting pictures of their watches on my Twitter. Yeah. When I wake up, I'm looking at 50 yeah. to 100 watches every oh, yeah. day. Yeah, man. That's and I'm good. going, wow, that's a lot of people. And and that is unity. And that is leadership. Yeah. And it does make me feel like, oh, okay, cool. There's other people in the world that are up and getting after it. Yeah, there's a guy. Four twenty. Yeah, and there, there's a guy who's a teacher. Posts good. Yeah, he's a teacher. He posted good on his good. classroom door. Yeah, on his classroom door, man. And so now he's yeah, um, kind of pushing that that those good messages to the kids, you know. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, it's all. I think it's all positive. Social media. It is easy to get to get that attitude towards it because of all the people who ab- abuse it, quote right, unquote. Right. Um, but you know, like if you went, I don't know, like on the highway and, and all you saw was people speeding, reckless driving, it still doesn't change the fact that you, you still want to drive on the highway because yeah. you have something to do, you yeah. know, um, your, your, your pursuit is different, but yeah, there's going to be everyone. The know, other weird thing on. is I have no idea where this is going, you yeah. know? And so like this podcast, I didn't, you know, we just kind of did it. Mm-hmm. I went on with Tim Ferriss and just kind of did it. Mm-hmm. I started Twitter. I had no idea what that was going to be. Yeah. And so it's, it's fun for me to be adventuring into things that I don't know the outcome of. Yeah. And yeah. this is one of them. And Twitter is one of them. The book was one of them. And, you know, I don't know what's around the corner next and I don't know where this is going, mm-hmm. but I will stay with the principles that I believe in mm-hmm. to the best of my ability. And I think that's what makes it an interesting ride yeah, is yeah. where's that going to go? Yeah. We'll find out. Okay. Last question. Jocko, what motivates you? I heard you mention the man in the cave. Can you go deeper on this? What motivates me? Well, I've talked about this before, and it's kind of what we were talking about a couple minutes ago as well. And that is, first of all, with the man in the cave and this idea and this thought of the enemy. And and that was a thought that used to drive me. And 
kind of haunt me and make me get up early and work hard to push myself because I knew that somewhere out there, there was an enemy, a real enemy, a real man, a person, a human that was waiting for me and that was preparing for me. And therefore I needed to prepare for him. I needed to be ready. I needed to be the things I always talk about. I needed to be stronger and faster and smarter and better. So that when we did meet on the battlefield, I would be ready for that rendezvous, for that meeting, that fate, that battle. And that thought, that thought of the enemy, it, yes, it absolutely fueled me. It, and when I was a leader in the SEAL teams in charge of men, it was even more profound. Because I was thinking about that rendezvous. For everybody that I led, everyone I was in charge of, everyone that I trained... And I felt that burden, the burden of responsibility to prepare those men and protect those, those men, those, those frogmen, those warriors, my brothers. And it, it was my burden to train those guys and prepare them. And that burden, it may have made me a little bit crazy, a little bit paranoid, a little bit over the top. But I didn't really know any, any other way. And so now I am no longer a combat leader. I no longer prepare men for war. So the drive and the motivation is from a different place. from a solemn place. The drive now and the motivation now is not really from the enemy anymore. Now it's from my friends, my brothers. It's from those seals that I knew and that I
cared about more than anything. And that they sacrificed everything for us and for me. And those guys, they gave their lives for us. And now I cannot help but think and remember that every breath that we take is a, it's a gift. It's a sacred gift from those men. Every day we have, every sunrise, every thought and every smile and every laugh, it's a gift and I will treasure that gift that gift of life and I will not let it go to waste not one second of it and I'll cherish every moment of it and I will live it I will live it in their memory and in their honor I think that's uh, it's about it for tonight. So, as always, thank you for listening. Thanks for subscribing. Thanks for reviewing. Thanks for supporting. And thanks for taking a moment to remember the brave men and women that have fought and died for our freedoms. And in their memory, make sure you get out there and you get after it. Until next time. This is Echo and Jocko, out.